You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on this episode, I'll be talking to Dorian Linsky, writer for publications including The Guardian, GQ, and The New Statesman, author of books including The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984, and host of the political podcast Oh God, What Now? Dorian's new podcast series, Origin Story, digs into the secret histories of ideas and concepts like neoliberalism, centrism, McCarthyism, as well as the subject of our conversation today, that much-argued-about term, woke. Also joining me is Julia Ahrens, Stylus's editor of Pop Culture and Media, for The Download, the section of future thinking where Stylus experts unpick the key cultural, business and industry trends of the moment that you need to know about. On this episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming Barbie movie. Yes, you do need to have an opinion about it, and Julia will tell you why. But now, let's hear from Dorian Linsky on the origins of Origin Story. So Origin Story, the point is, is that each episode, they're about an hour long, we take a very commonly used phrase from the sort of political and broader cultural discourse, like a word or a phrase that we think is used very widely, but often misunderstood. I mean, either wildly misused or just used in a very simplistic way. Some conversations with Ian Dunt, who I do Oh God, What Now with, the weekly political panel discussion show. And we wanted to do a show together. And out of the conversations, we realized that what was most interesting to us was this idea of clarifying the history of these words and hopefully meaning that people would sort of use them more accurately and also be more sensitive to when they're misused. Because some of the ones we've done in the first series, like centrism or woke or McCarthyism, they're misused all the time, like literally every day. And so we thought this could be entertaining for people, but also actually useful. We're interested in, in history and politics and I suppose economics, but also psychology. Why do certain ideas take hold? Why do they seem to explain the world? And then how can they go wrong? I think that is a key point for a lot of the listeners to this podcast who are coming from brands and startups and are are business people trying to understand consumers, essentially, and trying to understand the psychology of consumers. Mm. And so I think for me, the woke episode is a really interesting one because there is a term which is probably the most contested term of, of the day at the moment and has been twisted far beyond its original meaning mm. as you mm. as you outline in the episode, but is nonetheless in some respects, vital for businesses and, and brands and so on to understand because it, it is driving a lot of the cultural conversation, especially with young people who are yeah. one of the wokest generations we are, we've ever had, so to speak. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that change and, and what, what, it, what, what does it mean now? What does work well, mean now? I mean, this was one where we really came to the conclusion that this is a useless word. It's not a word that I use I will refer to woke bashing or anti-woke politics, but it's sort of like implied air quotes because woke doesn't mean anything. There isn't really a coherent set of ideas that you can point to as you could with, with neoliberalism, Marxism or whatever, and go, well, this is what these people believe. Because it's flawed from the start because it starts off as a, it's taken from black American slang. It's got a history, but it doesn't really, quite a long history 
but it doesn't really actually take off until literally a few years ago. And then very, very quickly it gets taken as an insult. And I think the fact that it is black American slang, the fact that it is, it's not, it's not classical English grammar. It's used to sort of, to sneer at it. It's, it's more demeaning a phrase than political correctness. This is a bit like woke, like what a stupid word. You can't even say it, say it properly. And then, and then what does it mean? What counts as woke? Like, does woke mean general, liberal, progressive ideas? Or does it mean, as it's often used, to be almost like this kind of hardline cadre of fanatics who want to turn the world upside down? Is, is the most sort of extreme person on the, on the hard left woke, but also Gary Lineker is woke. Like, this is a useless word. That was where we ended up in the episode because what we did, I brought in a lot of context from the history of political correctness and that I think that this is a reiteration of political correctness. As political correctness was a rebranding of what was called in the 1980s, the loony left in the British tabloids. There is always a thing, there's always a thing to basically make progressives seem mad. It is part of the problem, which is that these terms get their ultimate definition from the people who, who don't like them in the end. The sort of basic definition of woke, which I think most people can agree on, is being aware of social injustice, right? I mean, that's a kind of very reductive, but basic right. perspective on what woke means. That kind of never gets talked about anymore. Now woke is totally <laughs> defined by the right. But it's all the stuff that they've hated for years. But what the right is, is, is good at is seizing on a new word and then rebranding stuff that they've hated for ages. So what is one of the main obsessions of anti-woke people? It's universities, absolutely obsessed with like woke students and woke academics and blah, blah, blah. Kemi Aidenok was, was ranting on about them. Well, this goes back to like, there's a book from, I think I mentioned it in the episode by William F. Buckley from like 1950, I think, about Harvard was like this kind of lefty brainwashing institution. This is like Harvard in 1950. So like not radically communist, I would say. So they keep coming back to the same things, but there is, but there is no set kit of beliefs here. It's not like they basically go, okay, here's what you should think about critical race theory. And here's what you should think about statues, not even specific statues, which is all, all statues. And here's what you should think about free speech. And here's what you should think about trans rights. It's like, but people don't operate like that. People do not have like a, just a set of beliefs like that. It's more of a patchwork. It's an attempt to make out that something quite inchoate, which is generally left liberal values, is a dangerous ideology. And I think the idea of wokeism, well, it's not an ism. It's simply not an ism. Wokeness, ooh, but at least it's not inaccurate. But wokeism is an invention. Like it does not exist, but it, it makes it sound kind of sinister. Like there are all these set texts and things that you must believe and leaders and ideologues, but, but that it's not true. It's way messier than that. You Bade mentioned Kemi Badenock. Um, I just wanted to bring her in. For those who don't know who are listening, Kemi is one of the candidates for Tory leader in this country now that Johnson has sort of resigned. And she gave a speech sort of talking about what she's going to do as prime minister if she gets there. And, uh, and she talked about how she will discard the priorities of Twitter and the Ben and Jerry's tendency for firms to put social justice over profit. 
Yeah. Now, I've had Ben and Jerry's on this podcast talking about why they are socially progressive and how it's good ethically, but also good for their bottom line. And there are a lot mm. of people out there who want to buy ice cream and also want to buy ice cream from a ethically woke, I say in inverted commas, brand. And at Stylus, we've delved into this data over and over again over the years. Young consumers particularly want to buy from brands that are making a positive impact in, on the world. Whether they do at the checkout when they've got the choice is a different matter, but certainly their belief is that that's what they want. They want brands to be doing good. So I guess my question is, are the people like Kemi, are the people who may be in, in the most important role in government in this country, are they out of touch with the general public on this issue? When you see that, when you see in polls, again and again, the general public is fairly live and let live, right? So it's all about how it's framed. And that is not to say that there are not, there are always issues. There are always areas that come here of, of like competing rights and things that are not, that are not fully thought through and things that need to be rethought. Like that's, that's absolutely fine. Cause like I say, it's not an ideology, but this obsession with these issues, which were supposed to be called cultural issues is simply not reflected in the general public. So that's why the government's been trying under Johnson for a long time to try and start up basically sort of Brexit methadone culture wars to keep it kind of simmering. Hasn't really worked. Some people are trying to make uh, trans rights a massive feature of this leadership contest. And in polls where of both the general public and Conservative Party members, when they are asked to choose their three or four top issues that they are concerned about, in both, only 3% mentioned trans. So this is clearly not something that most people are animated about. And so you end up with this sort of bizarre sort of performative, what someone's called vice signaling, where at Badenox launch for her campaign, there were these, because she's against all gender neutral toilets, there were two single occupancy cubicles which they'd put, her people had put up signs saying men and women. Now it's a single occupancy cubicle, so it doesn't matter. It literally, it, it makes no difference that even if you were to say you had safety concerns or whatever, which is a whole other discussion, even by that logic, it makes no sense. So I don't really know who they're appealing to, except a certain number of, of newspaper columnists. That there, there is not an appetite for culture war in Britain. I mean, there's a lot more in America because there's a long, long tradition there and it's been going on for decades. But thankfully, no, it's not really taken off here. So a lot of the stuff that they're saying, I, I find absurd. That doesn't mean there should be no debate about trans rights or, or, or no debate about any kind of rights issue and changes in the law. Of course there should, but this isn't a debate. More from Dorian in a moment. Now The Download, where I'm joined by my stylist colleagues to unpick the key cultural, business and industry trends of the moment that you need to know about. Here's editor of Pop Culture and Media, Julia Ahrens, helping me understand why cult indie actress and director Greta Gerwig is making a movie about Barbie. The question is, why is this movie being made? And obviously, the obvious answer is because it will sell lots of Barbie dolls, I suppose. But there are easier ways of doing that than hiring Greta Gerwig, I would have thought, to make your merchandise-tastic blockbuster. And again, it goes back to this question of woke, you know, are they making a film 
that's trying to comment ironically on what Barbie used to be and can no longer be in this sort of more progressive world that we're in? What do you think about it? I think it's really just an organic evolution of a brand replatforming that the Barbie brand especially actually has been on for quite a few years now. They have a really lovely vlogging platform for Barbie as a character online where kids had tips for mental well-being and mindfulness and kind of, you know, taking care of themselves during the pandemic. In 2020, they also had a great vlog where Barbie with a friend talked about racism following the Black Lives Matter uprisings in the US and elsewhere. So they've been on that sort of trajectory for more progressive and inclusive companion content already. And I think less than, you know, the wokeification of Barbie, it's more about retelling these stories for both nostalgic adult generations. So sort of looking back on the memories they made themselves with active play and recontextualizing them with these narrative features, but then also telling those stories for the upcoming generations and alpha and beta generations who are much more diverse than the millennials and Gen Z, that Gen X generation who originally played with these toys in the 80s and 90s and just reflecting their experience and actually giving them a narrative that enables them to see these toys in the context of their own lives. And there's interesting moves happening eternally. They've just hired a former Disney exec to either lead for IP and franchises. So I think we actually have a lot more to look forward to from Mattel in terms of expanding their product lines with a really deep entertainment and storytelling background. What else have you been working on or seeing or, or being excited by at the moment? Definitely deeply intrigued by Netflix's moves into mobile gaming. It still seems a bit scattershot at the moment, but I think this is also part of the idea of actually building a broad foundation for your own company to then see which formats actually work. So Netflix have just announced that they intend to offer 50 mobile games for all of their subscribers by the end of this year. And during the recent Geeked event, they announced a couple of those. And many of them are, you know, casual and mobile games that are based on their existing shows. So you're going to have a Queen's Gambit chess simulator where you have a sort of narrative and you can learn how to play chess. If only there was another way for people to learn how to play chess. And then alongside that, however, they've been buying up really well-regarded indie studios like Night School. They also bought the Finnish developer Next Games, who have actually worked with Netflix previously to create some of their, again, narratively driven themed games for one of the existing shows. So they're building a fairly broad foundation to explore the entire space of mobile gaming. And I think it's an interesting move because people are going to want to have more interactive experiences and mobile games particularly play a huge role here. Smartphones have a huge penetration in terms of hardware globally. And because they're comparatively small games, they're usually easy to pick up. So there's not like a steep learning curve as you have with really complex console or PC games, which actually means that mobile gaming already takes up 52% of the revenue of the entire gaming market. So it's a huge sector. So exploring mobile gaming as another avenue for you to kind of provide these cross-category experiences and let your fans of, if your narrative publisher like Netflix is, actively experience your storytelling as well as passively consuming it. I think it's a really smart expansion of their brand and considering that they've been struggling a bit with subscriber retention recently, I'm not that yeah. surprised that they're going hard on this. You can see my full interview with Julia in video form on our YouTube channel. Head over to youtube.com slash stylusglobal and look for the download. Now let's return to the final part of my interview with Dorian Linsky. One sort of final question, which I'm interested in, because, because of what you were talked about in the, in the episode about political correctness, I was thinking about the sort of evolution of this into, into what we now are talking about in terms of wokeism. And I, and I felt like there was a period in the 90s where political correctness sort of went away and we had 
It's certainly in, in Britain, we had a kind of, not a backlash, but it was sort of absorbed into loaded culture, into the, the Britpop era, where there was this kind of feeling of like, oh, we, we, we're being ironic about it, but we can get away with a bit of mm, sexism mm, and mm. racism and whatever, and it's kind of funny. And, and, then, and then we've emerged out of that period, almost certainly because of social media, to a point where I can't imagine ever going back to that kind of 90s irony. I don't think woke is going to go away in that sense. No, no. I mean, the one, the one uh, where I would stick up for 90s irony is that I think, I think the left progressives, they are often at their least appealing when they are humorless, come across as humorless and sanctimonious. I mean, nobody likes, I think, <laughs> hardly anybody likes those articles, those finger wagging articles about why some film it's not, it's failed. You know, the do better school of writing. It's, it's just, it's awful and it's off-putting. And the killjoy aspect of the left is, is always, I think, quite, it's unappealing and it's self-defeating. And so I felt actually what's happening in the 90s is a lot of fairly kind of lefty people just like, can we just have a bit, can we have a bit more fun? Can we be a bit more playful? Now, what happened over time is that that then led to just like straight up misogyny or whatever. We were still talking about, you know, little, little Britain, whatever. The blackface would still seem to be okay during the noughties. And so obviously there are some like really bad... <laughs> judgment calls there made in the name of fun and irony and comedy. But what I'm always looking for is a more sort of humorous, empathetic style of progressive politics, which doesn't make it seem like you're always wagging your finger. But what strikes me is that one of the big things in the 90s about political correctness was that the politically correct people were a drag, just awful, boring, humorless nags. And meanwhile, the politically incorrect people were kind of like fun and sexy and groovy. And I don't see that now. The energy I get off obsessive anti-woke people is not fun and irreverent. It's like shrill and paranoid. So I know that some people, I think of your Rod Little, Julie Birchill generation, still think that they're, they're kind of like swashbuckling, politically incorrect people. And, and you want to hang out with them because they're the cool, sexy people. But actually, the, a lot of the energy against wokeness is, is like not fun at all. It's like really, it's really like angry and intense and paranoid. Jill Jordan Peterson to me sums up this just like this incredible paranoia. Everything is just everything. We're always on the verge of totalitarianism. No humor whatsoever. And I think that is actually a big difference. And I think that's why that message is massively unappealing to young people in particular, that it's not just that they disagree with on specific issues of rights. It's that they find that like, it's just, it's just like, it's like nails on black, but like, why would you want to, why would you want to go down that path? Like, do you want, do you want pride, you know, pride march, or do you want one of those weird Jordan Peterson videos? And I, and I think don't underestimate the, and this is where the episodes, so to bring it back to the podcast, the episodes keep overlapping in ways that we don't expect. And one of them was how a lot of anti-woke stuff is built on paranoia, it is a conspiracy theory. And it, but it's a lazy conspiracy theory because it doesn't really join it all up. And so you're somehow meant to think that some, some sort of radical academic in Berkeley is in cahoots with Unilever-owned Ben and Jerry's. And... Gary Lineker 
And so there's a, there's a sort of an effort to suggest that there's this sort of overwhelming conspiracy to push these views down people's throats and to silence dissenters. And I'm not saying that there cannot be cases where people are sort of being silenced and I'm not, I don't want to be sort of glib about this, but there is not a, there is not a coherent monolithic conspiracy of wokeness. And therefore the people that end up talking about how there is do end up sounding a little unhinged. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at WeAreStylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.